Good day, KPA community. I am excited to bring to you this podcast episode where I am talking with Dallas Baptist University professor Travis Dickinson as he shares with us what it means for for us to be followers of Jesus and students of logic. How do logic and following Jesus fit together? So hang on for that great interview that we've got coming up. Uh, We're entering our second term of uh, the school year. We'll be having our scheduled parent-teacher conferences very soon. So look for those uh, parent-teacher conference uh, opportunities. We also, I also want to share with you that on Tuesday, November 9th, that we will be having in the morning a special session on um, our students, children, teens, and technology. So uh, there'll be an opportunity for some parent training and information there. Please make some plans to be there, and we'll do that. Without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Professor Travis Dickinson. Enjoy. All right, I am sitting down with Professor Travis Dickinson over at Dallas Baptist University. Thank you for joining us, Travis. Oh, it's my pleasure, John, for sure. Um, Travis and I go back a little ways, and uh, one of the things I wanted to bring uh, Professor Dickinson on is to talk about his book and really what's in the book, Logic and the Way of Jesus, um, which is a book that should really resonate with everyone in my community as we are followers of Jesus Christ, and we are very interested in studying and practicing logic. So what a great book and a great title and uh, something that would be very timely and meaningful to people in my community. So I hope people think about purchasing your book as they hear a little more about it. Um, One of the chapters in your book is about the intellectual pursuit of God. Yeah. And maybe to start with, um, could you share a little bit about how it is that evangelical Christians probably aren't usually thought of and maybe Christians in general as well as being intellectuals. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. So there's a so there's a you know definitely a, a history to this that um, I could go in more or less detail. I'll probably do less for the sake of time. But um, and and others have gone in much further detail. So guys like Mark Knoll would be a good person to look at, and uh, J.P. Moreland even in his book uh, "Love God with All Your Mind." Uh, goes into some of that. And so I just sort of briefly glance at it. And that is just to say that kind of historically, right, um, conversion becomes, this is, you know, 1800s, right around that time, uh, conversion really becomes more of a heart thing rather than a head thing. So the thing, as I've tried to sort of think think about this, that I, and, and this is definitely the tradition I grew up in. So it wasn't like my uh, leaders in my church, my pastors, or or even my parents in a lot of ways were were sort of walking me through my Christian faith to ask, you know get me to ask the question: Is it true? It was sort of like everybody was just happy enough for me to be along for the ride. And so when you start thinking about it, what you realize is that the reason to be a Christian then was really more for belonging and for a, a kind of movement. Um, and and perhaps you know various e- emotional moments that we've had in church or at camps or retreats and that sort of a thing, and I think the real change there is that it goes from being 
something that people convert to and, and sort of align with uh, on the basis of what they've seen to be true rather than these other sort of markers like an emotional experience or that kind of a thing. And, and then we just, uh, when we sort of seeded that ground, I think we really kind of seeded the culture in many ways because we became less, less salty in a way mm-hmm. uh, and um, had less of an impact because if someone didn't share those emotional experiences and someone didn't necessarily care to be part of that community, there was just no reason to, to sort of join, uh, to be a part. Yeah. I was thinking, um, sometimes it seems like the way that people think about, uh, which religion they follow is almost more like which sports team do you like? Yes. So then where uh, did you grow up? Even figures in that same kind of idea. Yeah, absolutely. And so the question of truth, just for a lot of people, even sounds like the wrong, the wrong category to apply altogether. Um, And and so part of that has, uh, I think, historically, as you say, kind of been traced to um, certain kind of movements of conversion that try to take truth out of the equation. And while those might have been expedient, um, maybe the long term effects of that haven't been so good for us. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, a big, of course, a important passage for this is the you know great commandment in matthew 22 37 through 39 where jesus it always sort of strikes me because jesus is being challenged intellectually in matthew 22 like repeatedly um and he you know (laughs) it's always a little funny to realize like jesus could have vaporized these guys if he (laughs) wanted to like they're challenging him intellectually he could have like you know uh, you know, sentiment out of existence kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but he didn't, he actually reasons with them and gives them logical intellectual responses. And then at the end of that is this great verse that uh, when he, it, Jesus is challenged again uh, to kind of come up with the greatest commandment uh, out of all the commandments, which there's a lot of commandments in the old Testament. So it's, it's a pretty good challenge. Um and he says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And I think that last part is the part that a lot of us either miss or we didn't notice. Or I know that for me, I memorized that verse in high school and I just kind of never, it never hit me that we're, we're called to love God with our minds. And so that's where I talk about this intellectual pursuit of God so that we're called to, I think part of that has got to be asking deep and difficult questions, of course, like pressing in on those things. And that's not somehow anti-Christian. Uh, that truth really should be part of that whole picture. Um, so we ask these deep, deep, and, deep and difficult questions and not as skeptics, though, not as cynics, not that we're trying to get, you know, trip mm-hmm. God up or something like that. But as Jesus characterized it as lovers, like we're called to love God with our minds. And so we ask deep and difficult questions because we want to know him. We want to worship him properly. We want to have uh, the right sorts of thoughts about him and good reasons to believe all Mm -hmm. the things that we believe. So this is very much at the heart, I think, of the Christian life and Christian discipleship. Yeah. And and it's the other thing that strikes me in that passage also is the idea that it's not optional, that it's not for those of y'all that find this interesting or yes. gifted in this way, love God with all your, your mind, but it, it's a blanket uh, commandment for, for every follower of yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. It, I, I think it can be read as this is the most important thing to do for all Christians, for all followers of Christ 
is to love God with all of who we are. And of course, a big part of who we are. Now we want to, you can overdo it, I suppose. I I don't think most of us are in danger of that. Uh, (laughs) You and I probably have a few scholarly type friends that might be in danger of that. But for most people, that's, it's, there's really no danger uh, of overdoing the rational intellectual side. It's really just incorporating that that's already part of our lives in other pursuits and just incorporating that into our Christian faith as seeing that as a value and seeing that as important as we pursue and love God. In your book, you, you have a section, you have a couple of sections, one about thinking critically as a Christian and thinking Christianly. Um, It struck me as I was reading those, that these could be different ways in which Christians make errors in reasoning um, and that both of these um, fail to to bring glory to God and to obey him with our whole self. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it means as a Christian for us to think in these ways, to think critically and to think Christianly and how we we fail or common ways that Christians fail at that? Yeah, I really think these go hand in hand, um, as, as I think that's what you're describing there as well, that if we don't think critically about our faith, then really the only way we think Christianly about our faith is if we sort of stumble on it, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, and that that happens. I think that people that grow up in a sort of very, you know, I'm here in Texas, you're in, you're in Texas as well, and it's very cultural to sort of at least sort of look and talk like a Christian and that sort of thing. And so, I think it does happen that people stumble into Christian ways of thinking and living, but for the most part, that has to be very intentional because as we both know, too, there's many people that attend church on Sunday or or maybe just a couple times a year, that kind of thing. And they're really not living Christianly, though they would they would maybe label themselves as a Christian or something. Um, you really have to think intentionally. I think you really have to press into and evaluate your life. So one of the things I tell my students, especially my first year students here at DBU, um, this is an awesome opportunity for them to really evaluate their worldviews and just how they think about things and, and figure out which, what ways has a sort of non-Christian way of approaching the world sort of figured into their worldview that they maybe didn't even realize. Um, because if you're not thinking critically about your faith, then there's a good chance you're not, you're not sort of living Christianly either. So I, I really do think those go hand in hand. And it really does get down to that level of thinking worldviewishly or, um, you know, evaluating what our values are, Um, you know, so if our values are just to sort of make as much money as we possibly can in life and live comfortably and get all the toys and that sort of thing, (laughs) you know, that's a very American way to approach the world. It's not a very Christian way to approach Mm -hmm. it. And I think it takes that deep wrestling, that deep evaluation to sort of see when we've gone off that sort of Christian path. And, and an important part, I think, of the life of the mind for the Christian that you talk about is uh, what I would call the virtue of curiosity, yes. cultivating uh, the skills, the wonder, the excitement for learning new things and just the desire to know more. Um, yeah, at my institution where I'm at, we're a you know, pre-K to 12 school um, we talk a lot about the importance of curiosity. I was curious if you could share a little more um, what, what you have to say about the importance of curiosity in the life of the Christian. Yes. Uh, I will try to satisfy your curiosity. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, I think, man, I just think, again, when, when you come back to that passage of the Matthew 22, 30, mm-hmm. again, it's a very important passage for me in, in this sort of topic because we're called to love God. And so I, I relate this oftentimes because, again, I think that phrase is just, it's sort of odd if we're honest to love God with our minds. But I think the right sort of picture is, is two people who have fallen in love. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully this doesn't happen in your K to 12. I'm sure it doesn't happen in your K to 12 setting, but it definitely happens in the, the college, especially freshman year setting mm-hmm. where, you know, two people just hook up and they're almost inseparable. Um, right. They start dating or whatever. And um, there is like this intense curiosity, I think for the other, like genuinely so that like looks disgusting for the rest of us. Cause you know, we're like, okay, please just spend a few minutes apart. Uh, but the rest, but for them on the inside, it's this wonderful, like, you know, wanting to know what they think, wanting to know what they feel like wanting to know, you know, everything about the other person. And I, I think that's actually a pretty powerful picture um, now, unfortunately, you know, this happens when we fall in love and that sort of curiosity can wane in a couple. I, I, I have said, uh, I think I say in the book too, that a marriage, uh, where there is no curiosity for the other is a marriage in trouble, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think same in our, our walk with God, that if there is no curiosity whatsoever, like if you look at the Bible and you don't read something that just sort of says, I don't know how to think about that, or I don't know why God did it that way or chose this or that or the other, man, I don't know what you're reading. Like it's, it's a book that is written, uh, I think in such a way that elicits these questions and this, this sort of curiosity should be alive within us. Um, so if you think you've kind of got God all figured out and you got your night niece night, <laughs> nice neat, I'm getting my words jumbled nice neat boxes and you've got mm-hmm. God in his place, then I don't think you're worshiping the living God in a way uh, because God constantly blows those things up for me. And I have been sort of working on these issues for a few decades now at, at high academic levels. And I'm still left with questions and curiosities and things that I'm pressing into. And so that, that, Again, that shouldn't be just a merely academic thing, but that's where I say that it should look devotional in a way so that as we press Mm -hmm. in, uh, we're not just pressing in to get our sort of theological, you know, categories all in place and be able to impress people with that. It's that we would know the living God in a way. And that takes, again, I think that just takes critical thinking in a really deep sense. Yeah, so there's this... And that's what I like about this is it really connects this intellectual side of the faith with uh, the heart, with, you know, with living it out, with knowing the personal God, that this is not just um, intellectual exercises, but it really, there's a real connection between the two, the two parts, the relational and the intellectual. Yeah. Great. I, um, you, you spend a chapter uh, describing Jesus as the logician. Yeah, I bet most people, if you were to ask them to give 20 ways to describe Jesus, I don't know if logician would make <laughs> most people's top 20. Right. Um, why don't you you tell us about Jesus, the logician? Yeah. So that is definitely a nod towards Dallas Willard, who yeah. really I'm stealing a title of his, um, but just wanting to uh, give as a sort of homage to him. 
Certainly, because he he definitely deeply impacted my thinking on this with his article of that title and and, and other places for sure. Um, but yeah, so it's not, and, and Willard will say this, that it's not that um, Jesus is developing theories of logic, right? I, I do more explicit work in the book than Jesus ever does. Uh, but in the same way, Jesus doesn't develop things like theories of morality, though the kinds of things he says are definitely of a sort of moral philosophical type. And, and so likewise, when it comes to the logic, that Jesus is using arguments, um, he's refuting arguments, um, he's making a case. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, his life is making a case for, you know, the truth of Christianity in a really broad sense. I mean, you know, proving it with his with the resurrection and so on. Um, but he's constantly sort of teaching. And, and this is one part that really I, I didn't realize until writing the book is, how often people were astonished by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, you might say, well, of course they're astonished, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, because he's doing miracles and healing folks and stuff. But just as often as, as those sorts of things, he was astonishing for that, but just as often people were astonished by his teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of that comes from the fact that he was a coming from very simple beginnings and uh, sort of carpenter's son from Nazareth and so on. But when they heard him, there was just this amazing uh, astonishment that they just mm -hmm. sort of couldn't get over how rhetorically and logically unassailable, I think it was, in the, in the truths that were pretty radical. You know, they're kind of commonplace for us because we, you know, especially for those of us that have been part of the church for a long time, you've grown up hearing these stories, perhaps. But I mean, to understand, I mean, I think there's a really fruitful study to look at the, the sort of first century Jewish mind and who they thought the Messiah would be and what the kingdom of God was all about. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus just comes in and, and drops all these bomb, like these logical bombs on people and they're astonished by them. Mm -hmm. So it reminds me in, uh, at our school, we read uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. Yeah. And he's, he's spent some time that we go through in that class as well, looking at Jesus's reasoning and how he, you know, uses good questions and good responses uh, to, you know, once again, using logic for the, for the kingdom of God. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's uh, also, it's just a great study and just would encourage people to check that out in your book as well. Yeah. Um, appreciate your that. book. One of the things that I really appreciate about it, by the way, is that you get into some of the technical things. You have categorical logic, truth tables, um, just a lot of formal logic that you actually don't normally find in a book, I think, like this. So yeah. I, I think that for and these are such helpful tools um, for someone who has taught and studied logic myself at a formal level. Um, I find that the the knowing these logical tools is just very valuable and it sharpens your mind so well. So um, one of the, I didn't want to dive into truth tables or, or syllogisms, but I did want to ask about um, just, you talk about some of the most basic principles of logic. Yeah. Um, what are some of those basic principles? Yeah. So, um, so some that, I mean, the, you know, the, the basic one that, you know, we kind of come back to a lot of times would be the principle of non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. For example, so the principle of non-contradiction says uh, for any statement, it can't be, the, you know, any statement A, it can't be the case that A and not A 
mm-hmm. the same time in the same sense. And so what, essentially what that's saying is that it can't be the case that God exists and God doesn't exist. That mm-hmm. would be the A and not A at the same time. Uh, now, that doesn't tell you necessarily which of those is true. Is theism true or atheism mm-hmm. true? It's just telling you that it can't both be true because these are contradictory claims. Um, and so that, you know, these kinds of things, I think, are the sorts of principles that we we know sort of intuitively. We use all the time. I always say this to my students that mm-hmm. you've been using logic from a very young age. I mean, we've all done boneheaded things where we mm-hmm. weren't using much logic, Uh Right. The parents will say amen here. But um, <laughs> but uh, right. We to for you and I to get to this podcast right now, we used logical reasoning and those sorts of principles were at play. We've maybe just never named them. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never sort of reflected on them or tried to formalize them. And so this section in the book is definitely just meant to be like, hey, here's a taste of it. Here's a I don't get into, you know, anything too very technical or too very deep, but um, just the sort of basics that one might use. And and I've had people say like, yeah, I've never been sort of forced to look at it that way. But, you know, obviously that's all very familiar because I've used, you know, I've tried to be a pretty rag- rational and logical person in, yeah. in my life. So, um. One of the one of these rules sometimes is called the law of excluded middle. It's very yes. similar to the law of non-contradiction. Um, I think that that this can be really helpful in thinking through all kinds of issues. But um, a lot of times, you know, we, we can formulate arguments for the existence of God just using some of the most basic tools, like um, you know that the you know, the universe had a beginning or did not have a beginning. Yeah. Good. Um, if it had a beginning, then, um, it was either, you know, it was either created by a person or it was created by a force, you know, like we could go through and just, uh, um, break it down and at each level kind of muster evidence and reasons to say, well, this is why, you know, you got to pick one or the other. Yeah. Can't both be true. And um, the evidence points to this one being true, or or maybe even through just pure reason, we can see that one of these is true. That, um, you know, so those would be be one of those those wonderful things about learning these principles is marshalling them together to, yes. to in concert to establish important truths like that there is a God, or that God is loving, or that um, God is a, even a Trinity, things like that. Yeah, um, I think I think, and so that when somebody pushes back on that argument and you say either the universe was caused or it was not. And they say, no, I deny that (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can say, well, here is this logical principle as old as Aristotle. And of course, before, uh, right. That says, that says you can't. And, and, uh, and there's a way in which just putting it before somebody hopefully would be helpful, uh, for them to see that that's, that again, is this sort of unassailable, logical Mm -hmm. claim um that you know they one might say they deny that but it's it's a little harder than they might think we're running to the end of our time but i want to end on our last topic which is uh something you pick up near the end of the book which is about the role of evidence because uh a lot of people would say look people of faith uh christians 
you know, faith is one thing, but evidence is another thing. What you have evidence for is contrary to faith. Um, you take a different approach in this. Tell me about how you see evidence and faith working together. Yeah. So I, I think so the first thing to say is that evidence should be understood very broadly. So sometimes when people hear evidence, they think of scientific evidence or something like philosophical evidence or something like arguments. And I think that, uh, you know, we need to be very broad-minded about mm -hmm. evidence. And so um, I always tell my students, like, please don't leave my class and, you know, cross the busy intersection and wonder if that semi coming at you, if you have good reason or good evidence to think mm -hmm. that that semi coming at you is really there or something, uh, right? Because you won't be reasoning for long if you do that. So, <laughs> and, and I think you are, you have good evidence from seeing this oncoming speeding semi to jump out of the way, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so when it comes to faith, I think it's important to think carefully about faith as well. And for me, faith would be a, a, just an attitude of trust. Um, mm -hmm. All right. There's more to say about that, but I think at its basis, it's an attitude of trust. And so we we typically need good reasons. And if we're going broadly of thinking of evidence as just good reasons, then faith can be supported by good reasons. And I think most of us, in fact, have good reasons. I think that's always the, the mm -hmm. crazy part about somebody who rejects the role of evidence is they're somebody, I bet, that heard a powerful testimony at one point in their own journey and took that as they might not put it this way, but I would say they, they got good evidence, good reasons to believe. Um, and so, and all of us have that answers to prayer, uh, maybe a very meaningful sort of worshipful experience and so on, as well as the science and the history and the philosophy and so on, that should all constitute good reasons to believe. And I guess I'd just say in my own life, um, my faith has only just grown. Mm -hmm. The more evidence and the more I see that Christianity explains the world and explains me uh, and and provides hope and there's good and it's a reasoned hope, uh, as Peter would put it in First Peter 3.15, mm -hmm. um, right? it's a rational hope that we have uh, in the gospel. Yeah, it's always seemed to me that if we think of faith and evidence as not going together, as kind of being opposites, uh, we'd almost be compelled to close our eyes and have no evidence so that our yeah. faith could increase. Or that um, if you think that you you know should have faith in in your spouse, then it would also seem like that that would be contrary to evidence. But in, once again, in in real life, it would seem like the more evidence I have of my wife's fidelity, the once again, the more that I I trust her and my my trust in her grows with more yeah. evidence. Absolutely. So I, I've never and, seen and how the two you know, are at odds with yeah. each other. And, and Jesus is, Jesus spent a whole lot of time proving himself to a lot, you know, a, a group of followers. If evidence didn't matter at all, I'm not sure what <laughs> he should have just yeah. stayed invisible or something. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, like you said, a big, a very important part of this is having a broad and view of evidence, not making it so narrow or technical or legal or something like that. And then saying, well, we don't have that for Christianity. Um, well, you know, maybe you're defining evidence uh, just too narrowly. So, yeah. Um, well, thank you for this time. I want to once again encourage people, check it out. Um, Logic in the Way of Jesus. 
Um, you should read the book and learn more about all these things. We've just barely skimmed the surface of and uh, even more things than that too. So appreciate it. Thanks for, for joining us, Professor Dickinson. You bet. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. for listening to this interview. Don't forget that as we roll into uh, the upcoming early weeks of our second term, that there are opportunities for parent-teacher conferences. Look for those. And also don't forget the upcoming technology talk for parents and what this means for your students. Um, This coming up down the road Tuesday, November 9th. Hope to see you all there. Have a great day.